Hello and welcome to Inside Out, the podcast where we redefine success with entrepreneurs and other badass millennials. I'm your host, Jane Z. In today's episode, you'll hear how a group of MBA students put their heads together to tackle the massive shortage of PPE, personal protective equipment, during the first wave of COVID. Our guests today are Dr. Alex Ding and Shobit Singhal. When COVID hit the U.S. last March, Alex was serving as the chief of radiology at a large hospital in the Bay Area. He described it as a chaotic and scary time on the front lines. They scrambled to get the right protocols in place and had to make hard decisions about who would get to use the scarce resources like ventilators and N95 masks. And because the virus was still so unknown at the time, Alex actually lived apart from his family for three months in order to keep them safe. In his last few weeks of in-person business school, Alex shared his experience on the front lines with his classmates. They were shocked to hear about the PPE shortage and eager to help. So they quickly formed an operation to source PPE for doctors and nurses across the country. One of these classmates was Shobit, and he assumed a role in the command center, helping source shipments of masks from China and Taiwan and dealing with daily challenges like getting the shipments past customs and then getting hospitals to actually accept the donations. Their initiative, called the First Wave, ended up raising over $200,000 and more than 300,000 masks. Alex and Shobit share exactly how the initiative unfolded, the ridiculous hurdles they had to overcome, and why the national COVID response got so politicized. The story of the first wave has now been made into a children's book called Tickle Trouble, published by Ladderworks, a publishing startup that aims to empower kids to become social entrepreneurs. It's a perfect gift for the holidays, and you can get your copy of the book at ladderworks.co slash products slash tickle dash trouble. The link is also in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, be sure to hit follow on Apple or Spotify for new episodes like this every Tuesday. And if you enjoy this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a five-star rating. It really helps us out. And you can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane. All right, on to the show. Welcome to the podcast, Alex and Shobit. Thanks for having us. Hey, Jane, how are you today? Good, good. How are you doing? We've got most of the country covered with the Northeast, the South, and the West Coast. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on the cusp of the South and the Midwest, so maybe I can count for both. <laughs> You're still in Kentucky, right? Yep, the That's northernmost awesome. part of the South or the southernmost part of the Midwest. Right, right. And you had quite the move over the pandemic. You moved from San Francisco to Kentucky. That must have been quite the uh, culture shift. Yeah, well, I mean, it was definitely a, a big cultural shift, but it's more just the logistics of moving in the pandemic that I would not recommend to anyone. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I'd love to get to know you two a little bit better. Shobit, maybe we can start with you. Do you want to give us kind of your journey? Yeah, for sure. So I'm currently a manager at a tech company in the Bay Area. I live in San Jose, California. And my journey has been pretty, you know, pretty long to get to where I am. I was born in a pretty small town in the middle of India. My parents moved to Bombay, which is now called Mumbai, when I was one. And I pretty much grew up in Bombay. You know, as most of my friends, I completed my engineering from there as well. And then I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. Uh, the job prospects in India weren't that 
uh, interesting. So I decided to come to the U.S. to pursue my master's. I spent a couple of years at Syracuse University. And then uh, when you're at that sort of phase of your career, just starting out, if you don't have too many options, you tend to just take the first job that comes your way. So that's what I did. I got into tech consulting. I was also on a work visa. And the work visa is pretty interesting. I think it's a great tool for immigrants to sort of try and pursue the American dream. But in its, in its current uh, format, it can also tie you down a little bit, and it makes changing jobs very difficult. You know, it's a months-long process to change your job, and then every time you do so, you can get reset in your visa process. But I sort of like tech consulting a lot. There was a lot of travel, a lot of different companies to work with, a lot of different people. Uh, I traveled the world for eight years, so I was very happy doing that. And then I was uh, fortunate enough to get a, a pretty big break into big tech. I joined a large tech company in the Bay Area in their data center team, where I was managing a bunch of programs to build and install AI servers. Did that for a few years, uh, stayed with the company, changed jobs a few times. Throughout my career, it sort of felt that my career was sort of happening to me and I wasn't really being intentional about it. That's when I decided to sort of take a pause. I was really done with my work visa situation. And that's when I decided to you know, pursue an MBA to try and understand you know, how do businesses really work? How do people make decisions in businesses? Because up until that point, I felt that I was sort of executing to other people's decisions and I was never a part of the decision-making group. So that's when I decided to, was fortunate enough to get into Wharton. You know, post Wharton, I've had a, sort of a pivot in my career. I'm more on the decision-making side, working on strategy and leading large projects at tech companies. So that's been sort of a journey, pretty, pretty windy road, but pretty happy with where I am right now. It must feel really different to be on the other side of the table and actually making decisions and calling the shots. Do you miss at all any of the individual contributor stuff? You know, I'm at a place now where um, I found that happy medium. I still like to do a lot of work myself, you know, roll up my sleeves, you know, write some code, do some data analysis here and there. But I feel like I'm at a point where I add more value teaching others how to manage programs and, and sort of think critically than sort of doing the work myself. I take a lot of joy in sort of giving back. I've had a, a really great managers throughout my career and I want to sort of pay it forward. I know you two met at Wharton in business school. Alex, what was your journey into business school? Because I know you have a medical background. Yeah, that's right. And again, thanks so much for having us on today, Jane. We are really excited to be chatting with you and really appreciate the opportunity to, to share our story. And, you know, there are a lot of people who always knew they were going to become doctors or have been really pushed hard to do so. Uh, I had the great fortune of having what probably sounds like some non-traditional Asian parents, ones that really didn't push me uh, hard to do that. They just encouraged me to do whatever I wanted, whatever was interesting to me. And it's perhaps because we were Asians by the way of Germany, which is where I was born. So like show, but I'm an immigrant. I am immigrated to the U.S. in grade school. Uh, but all throughout school, I was academically really interested in kind of everything, science, medicine, research, politics, policy, business. The hard thing for me was that I found so many things interesting. And I think there's always been a number of people that were skeptical that I could really put it together into a career. And so actually, before I went to medical school, I had worked kind of on the business side of things. Uh, I worked at Goldman Sachs and at The Economist, both as an analyst, and then I went to medical school. Um, and in medical school and training, I kind of got more involved in policy and advocacy and 
did more work with the American Medical Association and ended up being elected to their board, which is kind of a big deal because the board members there are somewhat unique in that they serve as spokespeople for the association. I was there during the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, had an opportunity to work with uh, the Obama administration on early implementation. Um, and then when I finished training, I went into private practice and kind of worked my way up uh, and became a managing partner of a 70-partner group in the San Francisco Bay Area and Northern California, and then moved into hospital leadership uh, and served as the vice chief of staff and board member at the Public County Hospital, and then also a chief of radiology at Sutter Health, which is a large health system out in Northern California. But there, since I lived in Silicon Valley, I practiced out there, I kind of also got pulled into tech. And it's hard to network there and just not fall into tech. And so I found kind of the excitement and the opportunity to really apply technology into healthcare to improve care, to make things more efficient and have a chance to work with companies in telemedicine, connected medical devices, digital health, AI and ML. And I think it was there that I kind of was able to put everything together and really um, pull myself to, to go into business school and really use that as an opportunity to learn a number of various different things to try and really pull everything together into a, a cohesive career. Were you at all frustrated by the, shall I say, the lack of tech innovation in healthcare? On the practitioner side, I've heard managing EHRs and old systems and having to fax things from one hospital to another. Like, did you deal with any of that stuff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think healthcare is ripe for disruption, but I think disruption is not really the right model to use for healthcare because you are dealing with people's lives. And so I think, you know, a lot of physicians have had experience with things like clunky EHRs and as a result have a large mistrust of what's uh, being sold to us as technology that will improve our practices and our daily lives and our patients' health. And so I think technology and healthcare and clinicians actually really need to work much more cooperatively and symbiotically to actually to be able to understand kind of what happens in the trenches in clinical care, how the workflow actually works, such that the needs can be assessed at the clinical level, and then the technology can be built to address those uh, those problems, as opposed to what I'm currently seeing as kind of the other way around, where technology is developed, and it's just kind of thrown on the wall to see where it might stick. And it's not always a perfect fit into whichever area it's trying to go to. And th so I think it's not wholly successful. Do you think one of the key things is to have people like you with that medical experience involved in developing these technologies? I certainly hope so. I mean, I really think that no matter how amazing of a technology you develop, if you don't understand the workflow and how to make the integration into workflow seamless, if you just have another separate application and another login, even if you've got the greatest technology or invention, you'll find that the uptake is going to be very, very low just because clinicians are so busy in their daily work lives that they really just don't have another second to spare to figure out another login and application that's outside of the current workflow. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the first wave, the initiative that you two and, and some other Wharton students worked on, that was a rather low tech, but very high need initiative. Let's rewind back to March 2020. Shobit, can you paint us a picture of where you were at in your career and life when the pandemic hit? Yeah, when the pandemic hit, we were still in grad school. We were in our final term. We were really excited for a big graduation party uh, coming up. 
And we're still waiting I for said, it. We're still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I remember one fine day, everything just sort of shut down. And the last weekend of class, had, you know, that was our last weekend that we that we really saw each other for a long, long time. And then from a career standpoint, I had a pretty stable job, and I hadn't really figured out what I was going to do post graduation. I had some ideas, but you know, they they went out the window pretty quick. Alex, how about you? Yeah, so when COVID hit, I was living in the Bay Area at the time, as you mentioned earlier. Um, I subsequently moved, but I was living in the Bay Area on the peninsula and practicing. I was, so I was the chief of radiology at several of the Sutter facilities at the time and also the, the practice lead. And as Shobit mentioned, we were both in our uh, second and final year of our MBA programs at Wharton and really looking forward to gearing up for what was going to be an epic graduation. Man, so you were working on the front lines when COVID hit. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have so many things to, to say about this. Um, the beginning of the pandemic at the front lines and the healthcare system was just so chaotic and scary. I think there was so much uncertainty and so much that we didn't understand about how this virus acted and behaved. Now, we didn't know how it was transmitted. Was it through touch or services, surfaces or airborne and droplets or was it aerosolized? You know, how deadly was it? what was really the level of precaution and protection that you would need to keep people safe. And so uh, San Francisco and the Bay Area were one of the first places in the U.S. to be hit with cases. And we really had to scramble to put in the right precautions and protocols in place, which, of course, we didn't know if they were the right ones since we were at the leading edge. And so we had a lot of scared patients that stayed away from the hospital, foregoing routine medical care, screening tests, but also much needed medical care, like heart attacks and strokes that I saw coming much later than they should have. But, you know, in addition to scared patients, our employees, our doctors were scared too. And this is something that we had never seen before. And we didn't really know how the disease progressed or how best to diagnose it or treat it. Um, and in fact, my practice was one of the first to recognize what COVID looks like on a chest X-ray and a CT scan. And so one of the things we were doing were uh, was really trying to hurriedly trying to disseminate this information, not only to their own doctors, but to doctors across uh, the country and the world. But as you'll recall, back in March of 2020, there was a shutdown that happened overnight and the hospital literally became a ghost town. Additionally, mm -hmm. just prior to that, in order to preserve resources, I had made a call early on to kind of halt all elective procedures. And all of that had some major economic consequences. And my own practice saw our revenues fall by nearly 70%. And we had to scramble to manage the workflow to figure out, you know, whether we should furlough our staff, how we could figure out how they could work from home, including providing clinical care from work from home situation. And all through this, we were still taking care of patients that came through the emergency department, but they were all essentially COVID or suspected COVID patients at that time. And for the economic issues, we had to apply for emergency PPP funds and other lines of credit to just stay in business. And instead of clinical care, we spent a lot of time in meetings just figuring out how to prepare for that first wave. And so that included setting up new workflows for how we might take care of patients with as little touch and as little as exposure as possible. Also increasing capacity by repurposing areas in the hospital that were now sitting empty and how to figure out how to turn those into ICUs. We took over the parking lots to set up triage tents. We had to figure out how to use our limited COVID tests on which sorts of people and patients. And this also meant kind of really talking about some really difficult things with major ethical implications, like uh, limiting visitors that come with you to the hospital, which 
if you think about it, it's really difficult if you're having a baby or if you're dying and there's no one at your side. I was also kind of figuring out if we run out of ventilators, who would get priority and who we would have to let die. And it was really kind of moving how we've all from how we've always been taught to practice medicine, which is where you spend the most resources trying to save the sickest to really battlefield medicine, where it was now about how do you triage and allocate resources to take care of the most number of people that can be reasonably saved. And so I think we in California were lucky that there was reasonable guidance from officials at the state, including the governor and public health officials in the county and kind of the greater Bay Area. I think they were relatively consistent and also trying to do their best to bring resources to us. But with a sudden supply chain halt, you know, there's relatively little that they could do, particularly with testing equipment and PPE. And so we really had to be resilient. And I think I've seen us be some of the most innovative I've seen in my whole time in healthcare. And so we ended up reusing things, repurposing things. We also thought about you know, how we might put multiple patients on a single shared ventilator to increase capacity. We tried batch testing mm. of COVID tests to use as few tests on as many people as we could. We were trying to do clinical things we learned from others, like laying people on their bellies when they were on a ventilator. And we were one of actually one of the first sites that participated in the clinical trial for remdesivir, which is one of the first COVID treatments approved in the EUA. But to get to the point, the long-winded way of getting to the, the point of PPE, you know, I think we tried to do our best with really limited amounts of PPE that we had. Um, it was scarce. People were scared. People kind of fought over who would get access to PPE. You know, who would get to use the more scarce N95, but more protective masks versus the regular surgical mask, especially since we didn't really know what was the right level of protection uh, was really scary. But we tried, you know, a number of innovative things like building our own PPEs with 3D printers. We bought UV lights that we shown on our used PPE. We tried spraying them with bleach. We baked them. There's this famous picture of some ICU nurses in New York that were wearing trash bags as PPE. And I think because there was so much uncertainty and such a lack of PPE, one thing I, I did was I really wanted to make sure that my family stayed safe. And so I actually lived apart from them for three months, March, April, and May. And you know, anything that needed to be done outside of the house, like getting groceries, I, I would go do for them. I'd sanitize them, just leave them at the front door. And uh, during those three months, I only got to see my kids by waving through the window. So um, wow. you know, in summary, it was, that must it was have been crazy. really it tough. Was just absolutely uh, craziness that we were all trying to figure out on the fly. I, I have to just pause and commend you and all the healthcare workers for doing what you did. We put a ton on your shoulders, having to make those tough decisions every day, stay up and, and take care of patients and, you know, make sacrifices, like stay away from your family. You know, thank you for everything you gave to the world. So on the PPE front, this problem was was apparent from the start, it seems. So what did you do after that? I remember you saying you sent a message to your Wharton colleagues telling them about the situation. How, how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the best things to have come out of business school is really the network of passionate, capable, out-of-the-box thinking people you meet and develop relationships with. And so when the pandemic first hit, we were actually still attending classes in person and between classes over meals. We still had the opportunity to kind of chat like regular people at the time. Um, and my classmates knew I was a doctor. And so naturally, there were a lot of questions about kind of what was happening on the ground. And, you know, I described many of the things that I just talked about, and they were really appalled and felt like they needed to do something. And so they jumped in, looked for an opportunity in which they could contribute. And so, 
we put our heads together to think about, you know, where else could we find PPE? And we kind of thought about, you know, academic commercial laboratories that were now shut down that were not currently working. So it turns out that they have some really high quality stuff. And so people volunteered to reach out. We got a number of donations from some of these sites and that required usually someone picking them up. And so a lot of that ended up being me driving around the Bay Area with a really small hatchback of a car, going to these labs, walking out with hauls of PPE, looking pretty suspicious in the process, I will say. <laughs> um, but uh, it also turns out, you know, people in construction also had industrial PPE that they were willing to, to donate. And I kind of went to some of those places and picked them up. And you know, I would just step my car to the brim, drop it off in my garage. People would also drop them off in my house or they'd drop them off to me at the hospital. It was just really, really amazing. Wow. So you were not only working the hospital, but also getting to know the city very well in terms of PPE. <laughs> yeah. And there, there was so much generosity, I have to say. It was really, really hard. Mm. Shobit, what was it like on your end? You were one of the colleagues that sprung into action. Yeah. So we have a, a sort of a Slack channel that we use to communicate with our classmates. So we had a couple of friends, I think Chris and uh, Daniel at that time, they had started some individual uh, projects to either purchase some PPE locally and ship them to their friends and family or s collect sort of small donations and find contacts in China who could procure some larger shipments. And that's when I got wind of the effort. And one of the first things I did was I said, hey, instead of these small donations from our classmates, why don't we centralize the effort using GoFundMe? So one of the first things I did was I created a GoFundMe page where we could just get donations and it would be just easier to share and manage uh, the whole donation aspect. And once I put that together, it just sort of grew legs of its own. And before I knew it, the GoFundMe had been shared across you know, hundreds of people's social media and we had started getting donations. And then once we started getting donations, we had to figure out what's the most effective use of those funds. And luckily, we had a bunch of classmates who had contacts with uh, manufacturers in China and Taiwan. So we started reaching out to those suppliers, trying to see if they had any PPE available. And we ran into a bunch of challenges. So the key challenge was that hospitals in the U.S. are only allowed to use N95 masks, but they were very expensive if you procure them from the U.S., if you were able to get any. Uh, at one point, it was $10 a mask. You know, Typically, it costs less wow. than a dollar per mask. It was $10, $30 a mask. So it was impossible to procure locally. And when we reached out internationally, especially in China, their standard is KN95. So mm. we had to get creative with that. So KN95 masks are you know, technically different from N95. So we weren't sure if they would be uh, useful in a hospital setting. So we had medical advisors like Alex uh, and, and Jim on the East Coast, who we would run these certifications by to see if they were at least usable in an emergency. Once we got cleared on that front, we started small. Initially, getting a few masks from China wasn't this big deal. So we were able to get a few shipments in and, and provide relief uh, pretty quickly. But over time, we saw that the U.S. government started cracking down on commercial PPE shipments. So a lot of our shipments started getting confiscated at customs. So we had to get very creative with the whole supply chain. We had to get small shipments in as personal shipments of a few dozen to a few hundred each, get them in. And then we had sort of two distribution centers, one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast, which was really my friend Chris's condo and then you know Jim's house on the East Coast. <laughs> so they would get these shipments in and distribute them to the hospitals where our friends and family and classmates worked. At one point, we saw that the hospitals started shutting down their donation centers. 
because they were not allowed to use KN95 masks. They were not allowed to go outside their existing procurement channels to get PPE. So we started seeing a lot of challenges and we just had to get creative. Every day was a new day. We didn't know what the pricing was going to be that day, what the customs situation was going to be, which hospitals would even be able to accept our shipments. So we had a team of you know 10 to 12 people who were constantly on Slack or on the phone trying to figure out, you know, what is the best thing we can do today? The harder part was actually uh, not getting the PPE, but actually getting them into the hands of the people that needed it. At first, the hospital administration didn't really know how to manage this because this was from outsider supply chain processes. And so they had concerns about the quality of the product. They were really concerned about liability. But one of the things that you know employees could do was to bring your own PPE. And that's totally fine. And so I, I would take the PPE that we got and I would literally take it directly to the clinicians or our hospitalists or ICU staff, the ER staff, who would, of course, gladly use them in lieu of either having nothing or reusing PPE that was tattered and falling apart that they've been using for weeks. After a short amount of time, the hospital recognized that this was better than the alternative. And so some of these policies were relaxed. And so soon we had a passable amount of PPE and hospitals started to kind of network and coordinate their PPE demands. I think we were able to then get our donations out wider and wider as we started to also form our own networks for how we could get those PPEs out to those with even more dire needs than than our own. Sounds like a lot of logistical coordination on the back end. Shobit, was that kind of your role in, in running the show behind the scenes? I would not want to take the entire credit for this. So we, as I mentioned, we were, I think we were a team of six people were sort of part of the core team. And then we had an extended team of probably 12 to 15 people. And very quickly, we sort of realized who was good at what. So we started specializing in those roles. So we had you know, a couple of folks who were focused on sourcing. So they had a large, extensive network in China and Taiwan. So they were our sourcers. Uh, we had a couple people who who knew what the custom situation was, so they were our logistics experts. Chris and I were sort of central command where we we would manage the GoFundMe, the orders. We had a whole logistics tracker going and an internal communication and coordination. So that was my role. I also took on some of the accounting responsibilities, and then we had a whole PR effort. So we had friends like Josh and Marlene and others who were reaching out uh, on social media and sort of other channels to get donations and to form partnerships. The underappreciated part of this effort is the kind of strong partnerships we formed. For example, with the Wharton Healthcare Management Alumni Association, who were you know, great mentors for us. They helped become the financial intermediary for some of the funds that were coming through the system. So great partnership there. We also partnered with the company Zappos, who was able to fund a lot of our shipment costs, especially in the Vegas area. And then every shipment that they covered for us meant more PPE for people who needed it. So super thankful Amazing. to them. Those, did they uh, arrive in shoeboxes? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a few did, yeah. And then we were also able to find a consumer insights firm, Olson Zaltman, who really helped transform our narrative and create an outreach strategy. And they were really instrumental in helping us brand ourselves and create that awareness of the effort. So very thankful wow. to all these partners. It sounds like a full-on startup. How much PPE did y'all end up distributing? And when did the project kind of come to a close? Yeah, so we started this project around March 
and then we closed it sometime towards the end of June. So this was about almost a four-month project. And in four months, we were able to collect a little over $200,000 in donations. And we were able to distribute over 300,000 masks, plus lab coats, gloves, and a few hundred bottles of hand sanitizer. And we were able to help almost 60 hospitals across 15 states in the U.S., from California to Connecticut. That's amazing. Alex, when did you start seeing the PPE situation improve at your hospital? That's a good question. I I think it hasn't completely resolved. I still think that we are using our PPE for longer than we should. We're still following policies that are for these quote-unquote extended use situations. We're still not back at the pre-pandemic situation where it's literally one set of PPE per patient that you see. But that having been said, I think with those policies and with the increased supply, a lot of the previous issues that I mentioned have, have been mitigated to the point where it's, it's now a workable situation. Alex, can you share a little bit about there is a national stockpile, right, that the federal government holds? What was going on with that? Like, why was there such a big PPE shortage in the first place? I think the PPE shortage situation is more of a supply chain issue. And I think you're seeing that expanded across not just PPE or medical equipment or healthcare related supplies. You're seeing that kind of reverberate throughout the entirety of the economy. If you try and gone out, go out to buy Halloween costume, for example, I think you'll see that there's some major supply chain disruptions. And I think <laughs> this is part and parcel to that. In terms of the strategic national stockpile, there is this giant warehouse of stuff, which includes PPE, but you know other things like ventilators and medications and any number of other emergency medical equipment and supplies that our country has. It is not meant to be the supply chain stopgap. It was not designed nor ready to supply all of the needed PPE equipment for a pandemic that all of a sudden hit. For listeners who are interested, there's a great PBS Frontline documentary about the PPE shortage. I remember when, this was probably March 2020 sometime, when things first started shutting down, I had relatives from China messaging me on WeChat like, hey, are you okay? You know, can we send you some PPE? And I remember thinking at the time like, oh, we don't need masks, like we don't need PPE, because that was the messaging that we were getting from the CDC. I don't know if Alex, you want to comment on how you thought that initial communications was around just COVID in general. I know scientifically, we knew very little about the virus, but how do you think CDC communications handled that? Sure. So, I mean, I think there were a number of missteps that ultimately led to the erosion of the public's faith in not only the CDC, but kind of the entirety of the governmental public health apparatus. And so, you know, it was a failure of, I would say, multiple agencies from the federal to the state to the local level. And it was public health officials and elected politicians. And I think the problem is that in our country that there are so many layers uh, that are independent of each other that are really piecemeal. And so there's not only poor coordination of messaging and policy and programs, but there's really not a direct authority that one has over another. And I think there's really poor data sharing as well. And so one should remember that it wasn't the CDC or even any part of the government that actually had the most useful data from which everyone was working from. It was from a private academic institution, Johns Hopkins. And so I think overall, there was inconsistency in messaging, still continues to be, quite frankly. And I think 
just as you mentioned, at first they said very publicly that no one needs to mask, but then very quickly made an about face on their recommendations. And, you know, there may have been some underlying reasons for why they um, why they made that recommendation, whether that was scientifically or they didn't want a run on surgical masks by the general public, further exacerbating the PPE shortage situation. But, you know, whatever the reason, I think that was one of the first inconsistencies that had a major impact on public trust in the agency. I think certainly as you get new information, you need to adapt to that information, but I think it needs to be better explained. Otherwise, it just looks like you're waffling or you have no idea what you're doing. And I think in this country, there's a lack of scientific literacy as well. And so, you know, you see not only can people be duped with false and misleading information, but people don't really understand how the scientific process works and why recommendations and policies might change based on newer information. And I think the biggest threat to the public's faith in the CDC and the governmental response really ultimately came down to the fact that I think it was an election year and people knew that politics was um, was trumping science. And so not only was the CDC internally being filled with more politicals rather than scientists, doctors, or public health officials, but I think there were a number of things that the CDC was doing, which ended up being overridden by the White House. And that, I think, led to a major loss of credibility, which, quite frankly, I think we're still trying to dig out of today and really needs to be worked on to repair. Do you think those political priorities are still relevant today with the vaccine conversation? I do. And I I think that the politicization of the federal bureaucracy has been mitigated with the new administration, but I think the damage has been done with the public. And it's just a lot of work that's going to take to rebuild that trust. So coming towards the end, I do want to leave listeners on a positive note because what you two and your team around the first wave have done is inspiring and commendable. And in our listener base, we have a lot of entrepreneurial minded people. And I wondered if you could each leave listeners with some advice around either healthcare innovation or just in general going forth with a new initiative. Uh, I think the biggest thing I've learned is to not be afraid of taking a first step. I find it very difficult to sort of plan out years and months uh, ahead of time, but you know, taking that first step and seeing where it leads, I think that's been sort of the biggest learning for me. As an example, when we were all trying to figure out how do we help each other when COVID had first hit, there were no clear sort of paths to take. So I took the first small step of creating a GoFundMe and from that, we were able to put this massive effort together and really help hundreds of thousands of people across the country. Just try it out. And, and the worst thing is you, you will fail. But if you don't try, you'll, you'll never know. And, Amen. And I would say that despite how difficult a situation we were in, I think with any sort of crisis, no matter how small or big, there are opportunities. It's really in those situations where you see some of the best in people you also see a tremendous amount of thinking outside of the box and innovation. I have seen much more innovation during this pandemic than I have in all of the rest of my medical career so far. You know, there are really interesting opportunities for partnerships you may never have ever thought of. I mean, given the unusual circumstances here, we were able to really think more broadly, bringing in people that traditionally would not be involved in healthcare and really develop 
these great partnerships of people who are able to bring different things to the table. And when you're able to put all those things together, some really amazing things can happen. No, you guys did an amazing, amazing job. I mean, the, the impact and numbers speak for themselves. There is now a children's book that is coming out about your initiative. Do you guys want to say a little something about Tickle Trouble? Yeah, happy to. So my friend Shreyas has this company called Ladderworks, and Ladderworks uh, looks for inspiring stories from the community to create picture books around and in turn inspire kids to be entrepreneurs within the community. We were fortunate enough that uh, Ladderworks picked our story from the first wave, and they just released their book. Uh, it's called Tickle Trouble. It started shipping worldwide uh, a couple of weeks ago. So you can go to ladderworks.co slash tickle trouble to get a copy. Amazing. And we will leave that in the show notes as well. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Sobit and Alex, for spending time with us and sharing with us your experience. Thanks for having us, Jane. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. Take a picture of where you're listening from and tag me on a story at Inside Out with Jane. I'll be back here next Tuesday. And in the meantime, chat with you online. Bye.